you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The terrible punishment failed to put a stop to the crime for which it was exacted. Persons of rank and talent lay under grave suspicion, and the sale of poisonous drugs was a regular trade amongst the lower orders. The traffic was hidden under the pretense of skill and divination, and for nearly three years, impostors who pretended to have power over spirits and to be versed in astrology and were consulted by the reckless and unprincipled of every rank under the shadow of their secret arts gave instruction in the deadly art of poisoning. Franz Funk Brentano This is episode 46, and this is part 1 of The Affair of the Poisons. The Heirs of de Brinvilliers. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Before getting too far into this episode, I suppose I should briefly recount the events of the last. I didn't make it part of the series, since strictly speaking it's not, and the events described in that episode aren't really all that important to this story. Although, I'm kind of second-guessing that. Briefly, it described the crimes of Madame de Brinvilliers, who poisoned her father and two brothers to inherit the family fortunes. The case scandalized Paris society, and King Louis XIV himself took a marked interest in seeing justice done. The case also led to unintended side effects, some of which were already partially seen in that affair, when the widow of his predecessor attempted to rope Pierre-Louis Penaultier into the affair, as well as the large number of other people arrested and questioned and connected with the case. Some context on the court of King Louis XIV might be necessary to fully understand what the de Brinvilliers poisonings had led to. King Louis once said of himself, I governed myself in accordance with reason, using good sense to resolve problems. He was a pragmatic man, and not superstitious except in regard to religious matters, such as the miracles of the Mother of God and other such things. In fact, Recruiting astronomer Pierre Petit to declare to the people that a comet that had appeared in 1664, which admittedly coincided with the declaration of war between France and the Netherlands, was not actually a portent of evil. Under the king, scientific knowledge flourished and was, indeed, actively promoted. The first scientific journal, the Journal de Savants, began to be published in 1665. In 1666, 
the Royal Academy of Sciences was founded, and then in 1667, the king began work on the Observatory of Paris in the Montparnasse area of the city. The poet Francois-Marie Arouet, better known as Voltaire, said that human reason in general was perfected under Louis. In 1668, King Louis began additions to a chateau at Versailles that had been owned by his father, expanding it into a formal palace. Within a decade, with the signing of the Treaty of Nimwegen and an end to France's hostilities with the Dutch, Louis moved the site of government to Versailles permanently. But all was not well in the opulent palace. The king himself seemed to have suffered from depression or some other mental disturbance. Starting in 1673, it was noted that he suffered from frequent bouts of insomnia, and when he did manage to get some sleep, it was punctuated by dreams, cries, and agitations. It was at first thought that this was due to the stresses of the war with the Dutch, which was still going on at the time. Later, however, it was said that he suffered from the vapors, a condition also typified by headaches, digestive problems, and a general malaise. Physicians prescribed him various medicines to alleviate these symptoms. In fact, there were concerns that two of his doctors, one named Velot and another named Dauquin, were in fact overprescribing. In January 1675, he suffered a particularly virulent bout of these so-called vapors, a violent vapor which made his head spin. And by September, it was said that he was suffering from severe headaches, alternating bouts of shivering and hot flashes, shortness of breath, malaise, and loss of appetite, as well as quote-unquote, dryness of stomach, whatever that is. He claimed to have also occasionally noted an apparent weakness in his legs. One of the king's many mistresses confirmed that sometimes he sat for whole hours by the fire, very pensive and heaving sighs. Also blamed, in addition to overprescription and whatever mental or physical conditions he may have been suffering from, was his apparent taking of completely superfluous pharmaceuticals that were not medicinal in nature. For example, it was known that a bath attendant named Quentin Vienne had been supplying the king with various drugs reputed to give opportunities of greater sexual satisfaction. It comes as little surprise that someone with as many as many mistresses of the king had partaken of such drugs. There were assassination attempts as well as should probably be expected from any world leader, particularly one as polarizing internationally as Louis was, being perceived as a bit of a boy due to his ruthless exploitation of loopholes in any treaty he made. In 1664, a man from Burgundy was arrested after he plotted to assassinate Louis by feeding poison to chickens and then sending the poultry to the court of Versailles. A slightly less violent incident took place in 1668, with the king being verbally attacked by a woman whose son had died while building the palace. Only a few days later, a man was arrested and sentenced to have his tongue torn out for ranting about the king, calling him a tyrant and saying that a new Ravaillac was needed. Francois Ravaillac had assassinated Louis's grandfather, Henry IV, in 1610. The next year, a man named LaRue was arrested in Switzerland for threatening the king. He later attempted suicide by cutting off his genitals, and his threats were so virulent that he was gagged when, he's, when he was later being broken on the wheel. Over the next years, attempts by the Dutchmen to assassinate Louis, as well as a poisoning plot, were foiled. But beyond the king's woes, 
The general atmosphere of the Court of Versailles was toxic, both literally and figuratively. Certain areas of the palace, opulent as they might have been, were far from clean. In 1702, the king's sister-in-law, the Duchess of Orleans, wrote, The people stationed in the galleries in front of our room piss in all the corners. It is impossible to leave one's apartments without seeing somebody pissing. In another instance, a Madame de Saul and a Madame de Tremouille defecated in their box at the theater, and then, to remove the evil smell, threw everything in the pit, meaning the lower audience. Clearly, some of the entitled nobles were far from noble in their habits. Feelings of depression and malaise were rampant, and many nobles in their writings reflected on the extreme boredom present at court. To pay one's court entails much trouble, constraint, expense, and boredom, wrote Madame de Maintenon. In effect, one gets up early in the morning, one dresses oneself with care, one spends all day on one's feet, awaiting a favorable moment to get oneself seen, to present oneself, and oftentimes, one comes back as one went, except that one is in despair for having wasted one's time. Madame de Sévigny, a prolific commenter on courtly life, quoted in the last episode, and who will undoubtedly be quoted several more times in the following episodes, said, There must be some sort of sorcery you practice in connection with the high life you lead. I think you must resort to black magic, as must impecunious courtiers. They never have a soul, but they go on royal tours, on every campaign. They dress in the height of faction, take part in all the balls, no matter how bankrupt they are. Their lands decrease in value. No matter, they just they go on just the same. She also wrote that court was a constant round of pleasure, but not a moment of genuine enjoyment. One nobleman, the Duke d'Anguien, said in February 1667 that people at the court were grateful for the coming of Lent just so that the co constant round of balls would end. The high costliness associated with this lifestyle, as well as extreme boredom, led many courtiers to become incorrigible gamblers since, as few people had money, everyone sought ways of getting it. This activity was tolerated by the king, and indeed he took part in it, but one could be banished from court for being caught cheating at gambling. As a pastime, many nobles also dabbled in the various flavors of occultism, cardomancy and other forms of fortune-telling, experiments with spell-casting and conjuring, astrology, and alchemy. Most of the fortune-tellers consulted by bored nobles were reputed to use what is called hydromancy, conjuring visions, and essentially substituting a glass of water for a crystal ball. Voltaire later wrote that the former habit of consulting diviners, to have one's horoscope drawn, to seek secret means of making oneself loved, still survived among the people, and even among the highest of the kingdom. Jacques Benenet Bossuet, the Bishop of Condom and tutor to Louis's eldest son, the Grand Dauphin, was notably hostile toward these fortune towers. Who can guarantee our future? How can I laugh at the vanity of these soothsayers who threaten whomsoever they please and fashion for us at will, ill-omened years? He also said that, in his view, these curious sciences serve as covers for spells and malefice. Poisoning has often been associated with witchcraft, and although the reasoning behind this is doubtless complex and multifaceted, 
It's likely it sprung from both the role of the traditional witch as a supplier of various herbal remedies and potions, and also from the lack of any significant external cause of death in someone who actually died of poison. You'd imagine that in years past, when one died of poison after eating or drinking something given to them by someone else, it would be a fairly simple matter to jump to thinking that they had had a curse placed on them. The use of poisons has doubtless been with us for as long as humanity has existed, but it's the Italian peninsula that's especially synonymous with poison. This identification goes as far back as the renowned poisoner Locusta, a favorite of the Roman Emperor Nero, who had supposedly murdered Emperor Claudius at the behest of his wife Agrippina. Throughout the years, the Italians were renowned for poison use, especially after the time of the notorious Borgia family, who, ironically, were not even Italian, but Spanish. It seems that it might be here, also, that the association with witchcraft really begins. As Montague Summers wrote, The Italian Striga was as loathsome as the vilest of the foul northern sisterhood. Nay, she was, if possible, even more dangerous, since she studied deeply the properties of simples and poisonous plants, the chemistry of drugs and abortives, and when sorcery and maledictions failed, venom was employed to complete the work. Heretics, poisoners, quack vendors, blackmailers, bulbs, these hags and their accomplices strove to make a hell upon earth. According to Guazzo's Compendium Maleficarum, the poisons used by witches are compounded and mixed from many sorts of poisons, such as the leaves and stalks and roots of plants, from animals, fishes, venomous reptiles, stones, and metals. Sometimes these are reduced to powder and sometimes to an ointment. Witches administer such poison either by causing them to be swallowed or by external application. In the first instance, they usually mix some poisonous powder with a food or drink. And in the second, they bewitch their victim, whether man or woman, while he is sleeping, by anointing him with their lotions, waters, oils, and unguents. They have a third method of administering poison, namely, by inhalation. And this is the worst of all kinds of poison, for by reason of its tenuity, it is readily drawn in through the mouth, which so quickly reaches the heart. At Milan in 1598, and again in Turin in 1600, rumor held that witches were purposely spreading disease and using it for their own nefarious ends. At least eight were executed for this. Other wretches avowed that they had at the devil's instigation collected pus from the sores of plague-stricken corpses and kept it in vials. The demons secured their own safety, but any person whom they touched, be it ever so lightly, with a foul matter, was infected and inevitably perished. The witches were supposed to go about the city smearing benches, the handles of doors, furniture, chairs, confessionals, choir stalls, even fruit, flowers, and food with the deadly stuff. An alchemist named Mora was found in possession of what was supposed to be poison, and in 1648, pots of a dark unguent and a mysterious powder were found in the possession of Lucia Cavadin of Nogarito in southern Italy. Then, of course, in the 1650s came the poisoning syndicates, associated with the Sicilians Hieronima Spara and Giulia Tofana, mentioned in the last episode. In 1533, Catherine de' Medici was married to Henry II of France, and it is supposed to be at this time that the Italian refinements of poison made their way into that country. 
Poison, at the time, was very much a quote-unquote perfect way to murder. Since at this time, obviously, toxicology was non-existent. By use of arsenic, the poisoner could avoid arousing suspicion in the naive medical faculty, and the victim was usually declared to have succumbed to a wasting illness. Another poison often used, reputedly, was what was known as aqua tofana, which was named for Julia Tofana, who had supposedly been the one to first develop it. In 1579, a witch was burnt in Picardy. Her name was Jeanne Harvillier, and it was her arrest and trial that led to the presiding, ma the presiding magistrate, Jean Baudin, to write De la Demonomani de Sorciers, published in 1580. Harvillier is worth mentioning here, because amongst her other crimes, she was reputed to have poisoned an abusive man named André Brulart with some powders prepared for her by the devil. But by no means is this connection between poison and witchcraft unique to France and Italy. It has been noted in witch trials from England and Scotland as well. Even more contemporary criminal cases further the supposed link. In the case of Philadelphia's poison ring of the 1930s, very similar, I might add, to the Sparatafana syndicate, many of the poisoners claim to have occult powers. That's a case that I might actually do an episode on in the future. Madeleine Delagrange was 36, the widow of a man who had been hanged for receiving stolen goods. She made a living as a fortune teller and seeress, successfully predicting events in the war against the Dutch and the birth of children to the Queen. She also had been known to suggest to people that they were poisoned and to supply them with antidotes which she said would work against the poison. She had been living with a lawyer by the name of Jean Farier, who in the company of Delagrange, on August 17, 1676, went to a notary, presented a marriage certificate, and asked for the drawing up of a will, stating that his wealth would be transferred to her in the event of his predeceasing her. Following that, surprise, surprise, Jean Farier died. Relatives of Farier launched an investigation, and it was soon discovered that Delagrange's marriage was a sham, and that the Farier, who had appeared with her at the notary's office, was actually a priest named Abbe Nail. Both Delagrange and Nail were arrested on charges of forgery and suspicion of murder in February 1677, just a few months after the execution of Madame de Brinvilliers at the Place de Grave. Soon after her arrest, Delagrange wrote a letter to François-Michel Le Tellier, Marquis de Louvois, the Secretary of State, declaring that one of her fellow prisoners was a spy. She had some matter of national security to discuss. Louvois ordered the chief of the Paris police, Gabriel Nicolas Delarény, to interrogate Delagrange as to this matter at the Bastille. When questioned about it, she stated there was yet another assassination plot against King Louis XIV, as well as against the Dauphin, or Prince. She furthermore claimed that it had been these conspirators who had murdered Farier. Now that's plainly ridiculous to me, because why would these conspirators murder an unimportant lawyer when it was only after Delagrange was jailed for that murder that their plot was discovered? It doesn't really make sense to me. However, further interrogation revealed little else, and she was sent back to the conciergerie prison. 
On September 21, 1677, an anonymous letter was discovered in a confessional in a church in the Rue Saint-Antoine, confirming the story that Delagrange had told of an assassination plot, in part anyway. It claimed that a white powder of some sort was going to be given to either King Louis or the Dauphin, not both. As a result, Delagrange's and Nail's trials were postponed, but nevertheless, they were taken back up and the two were hung in November of 1678. In the meantime, however, on December 5th, 1677, Delarigny ordered the arrest of a 32-year-old man named Louis de Venens, otherwise known as the Chevalier, the Chevalier de Venens, who had visited Abbey Nail in prison. He had apparently been claiming that he could create gold ex nihilo out of nothing. A few associates of his, namely a servant named Jean Bartomin, otherwise known as La Chaboisier, and a, and a banker by the name of Pierre Catalan, were also arrested. Catalan maintained that de Venens had, had once sold him some homemade medicine and had told him of his ability to fabricate gold. He financed de Venens' venture, helping him acquire sophisticated alchemical equipment for use in the boiling of various herbs necessary to his process. He also had, a bank, had set up a bank account in Venice under his own name. David Enns said that a friend of his, who also knew process for making gold, needed to send money to Italy, and it was, it was for this reason that the account was set up. The interrogators of Catalan expressed amazement that an intelligent man of business, such as himself, could be taken in by such an audacious plan. David Enns, meanwhile, was claiming that money deposited in the Venice accounts was withdrawn by Catalan. All of this was called into question, however, when the French ambassador to Venice informed de la Reine that the accounts in question didn't even exist. On April 13, 1678, La Chaboisier, in statements similar to those made by Madeleine de Lagrange a year before, said that he had important things to say to the king. Things, he said, which could save the lives of 50 people per year. By this time, others had been implicated in the affair. A blind man named Domas, reputed to have lost his sight in one of de Venens's alchemical experiments, as well as de Venens's mistress, Louise du Solcier, and La Chaboisier's girlfriend, Catherine Leroy. Leroy was to become a source of many statements in the following investigations. Almost immediately, she confessed that she had often seen La Chaboisier boiling herbs and adding powders to produce some liquid which he bottled and sent abroad. La Chaboisier, for his part, added that Catalan was paid for this upon its being done, and made a somewhat cryptic statement that some important foreigner had gone to carry letters to the late king. Della Reigny thought that this was a reference to some plot in which de Venens and his associates brewed poisons for Catalan, which they supplied for use in foreign assassinations. It was widely rumored that two former associates of the crew, a servant named Petit Jean, and a priest, Abbe Chapelle, had also died. Also, that in 1676, a former landlady of de Venens's and five family members were also reputed to have died. De Venens claimed that Petit Jean had died of the quote-unquote pox, and that the landlady had accidentally poisoned herself and her family with wine that had gone bad. Now, Catherine Leroy came forward with another claim. La Chaboisier had once attempted to poison her, and even though she had fallen ill, she recovered. 
Nonetheless, she said, she had been brought into the affair with which she was connected, and at his orders, she had poisoned two women whom she named. A wine seller named La Renault, who she had poisoned during a dinner they had, and a Madame Carré. A relative of hers also had paid La Chaboissier 300 livres upon the death of the Chancellor Etienne II de Ligre. Louise du Saulcier also claimed that she too had murdered a woman, feeding a woman named La Levasseur poisoned plums. These women definitely did exist, but at least Leroy's claims could be called into question. La Renault had died several months after the dinner with Leroy, and Madame Carré had been a frail old woman in poor health. Etienne de Ligre, as well, was an old man at the time of his death, and he was thought to have died of apoplexy, which is an old name referring to what we would now call a stroke. La Chaboissier had once said to Leroy that Madame de Brinvilliers was not truly dead, that she had left behind heirs. On May 17, 1678, two other associates of the crew were, were arrested near Lyon, a Robert de Bauchimont and his wife Marie. Marie de Bauchimont's first husband had died under mysterious circumstances, and then her mother-in-law and sister-in-law as well. Of course, the suspicion was that they had been poisoned. Marie had also, had also been previously suspected of counterfeiting. Robert told Marquis de Louvois that he had initially befriended de Venens in 1674 when he and his wife were living in Paris. Robert had always had an interest in alchemy, and he said that de Venens claimed to him that he could turn copper into gold. He audaciously claimed to de Bauchemont that they stood to make upwards of three million livres. The two witnessed firsthand his process for the creation of gold. He boiled together several herbs, including groundsel, which is Senecio vulgaris, a well-known poison, though it had been used at the time to treat kidney stones and as an anti-epileptic, and butcher's broom, or Ruscus aculeatus, as well as something called vermicular. Into this mixture, he sprinkled a reddish powder. The resulting solution was then evaporated and left behind a white sulfate powder. Next, copper, arsenic, and saltpeter were blended together in a goat skin. The white sulfate was added to this, as was a bit of mercury. A cauldron was filled with a mixture of vinegar, nitric acid, and something called oil of, oil of petroleum. The goat skin was thrown into the cauldron, and after the liquid had boiled, the goat skin was removed. This was opened, and a grayish powder was retrieved from inside, and this, in turn, was combined with molten silver in a mold, and an ingot was produced. This ingot was taken to the Parisian Mint and was declared by officials there to be pure gold. However, de Venens told the de Bauchemonts that he could not replicate this process right now, that the formula for what he called oil of petroleum was in the hands of a Francois Galop de Chastoyel, a man living in Turin who had once supposedly murdered a girl in Marseille. The trio went to Turin to meet with de Chastoyel although de Venens insisted that he meet with de Chastouille alone, then returned to France. Robert and Marie stayed in Lyon, while de Venens went on to Paris. At a, time, at a later time, the de Bachimonts returned to Turin to meet with de Chastouille, who told him that he had no idea what oil or petroleum was. Interestingly, the first visit to Turin 
coincided with the taking ill of the Duke of Savoy on June 4th, 1675. He later died on June 12th. Upon his death, the Duke's wife, Marie Jeanne, began to have an affair with the Comte de Saint-Maurice. Coincidentally, Catherine Leroy had said that La Chaboisier had met with that same man on his arrival in France to announce the death of the, of the Duke. In 1676, Robert de Bauchimont met the banker Pierre Catalan, and it presumably it was through Catalan that the authorities learned of the two. Della Reigny thought that de Venens and the de Bauchimonts had assassinated Charles Emmanuel II, and that the de Bauchimonts' return to Turin had been to secure their payment from de Chastoyle. However, is this even what the man in Turin's name was? Francois Galop de Chastoyle was a religious hermit who was living in the mountains of Lebanon and who had died some 30 years previous. In September 1679, de Venens attempted to, to bribe Marquis de Louvois, saying that he would give him alchemical knowledge in exchange for a lenient sentence. But it was all for naught, for Louis de Valens was held in the Bastille for years, not being tried until April 1682 by which time his mental condition had deteriorated considerably. He, both de Bauchimonts, and the banker Pierre Catalan, were all four sentenced to life imprisonment at Saint-André-de-Saline. The blind man Dalmas was sent to a workhouse, while Catherine Leroy and La Chaboisier were both executed. In September 1678, a lawyer named Maitre Perrin was at a party hosted by Marie Vigoreau, a tailor's wife and a former nursemaid for the Parisian aristocracy, and now a palm reader. Vigoreau's house was in the Rue de Courtevelaine. A big, powerful-faced woman, another fortune teller and widow of a horse trader, was notably drunk. Her name was Marie Basset, and she, had cl and she claimed to have done work as a poisoner claiming she needed to poison only three more people before her retirement could be assured. He also gathered from the reaction of Marie Vigoreau that she was aware of Basset's poisonings. Maitre Perrin informed the police who arrested Marie Vigoreau, Marie Basset, and Marie Basset's three children. Reading palms is not all they do, said Vigoreau. They also acted as pharmacists and directed clients toward treasure. For her part, Basset said that fortune tellers wreaked havoc amongst the aristocracy and commoners alike. After her disclosure of a widespread network of poisoners among the fortune tellers of Paris, Marie Basset was executed on May 8, 1679, burned at the stake in the Place de Grave, along with all her children. Marie Vigoreau died under torture the next day. The affair of the poisons was now well underway. Gabriel Nicholas Delarany said of what he had learned of, learned of all the poison rings, Human life has become a matter of trade. Poisoning is the great remedy in all family embarrassments. Impiety, sacrilege, abominations are common practices in Paris, in the country, in the provinces. But by the time Marie Basset had died, she had given authority as another name, one that was to become almost synonymous with the entire affair. She had given them the name of Catherine Montvoisin, otherwise known as La Voisin.
And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there, too. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.